0: Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.
1: And the Orioles have won the game! They did it! They did it! They did it! And they're going crazy! They're jumping on each other! One of the most unbelievable finishes you will ever see.
0: And welcome to Welcome to Orioles Magic, the podcast, Brett Hollander and Jeff Arnold. Jeff, always great to see you, buddy. And we got some new gear, some new equipment here to make this podcast really
1: pop. We do. I have a brand new microphone. You do as well. So it should sound a little bit clear to everybody. Uh, if you watch this on the video part, I actually have a light as well, which is right in front of me, which is making me look Probably brighter and better than it should, uh, but uh, a big tip of the cap to Tyler Hofberger and Maddie Campos who assisted us with getting all this equipment up and running last night. Because while well, you and I can talk about baseball and we can talk about the Orioles and do lots of other things, Brett, one thing that we have learned by doing this podcast is that technical wizards we're not.
0: Yeah, the whole world is trying to uh, get accustomed to being technical wizards right now, but I don't think anything can help us, Jeff. So, Jeff, as you know. <laughs> It is NFL uh, draft week, always a big deal. Uh, The baseball draft still supposed to happen in a a few months. The Orioles picked one last year. They got Adley Rutschman. They'll pick two this year, then three in the first 39. I'm excited about this. MLB.com, MLB MLB Pipeline came out with their top 100 draft prospects yesterday, and I've been combing it over, and I want to run down their top five. Again, the Orioles – Don't get the first choice, but they get the second choice. Number one for them is the big slugger, Spencer Torklinson of Arizona State, first baseman. Then Austin Martin, who's an infielder, shortstop third. Some say he can play outfield, too, from Vanderbilt. Asa Lacy, a left-handed pitcher from Texas A&M. Emerson Hancock, right-handed pitcher from Georgia. And middle infielder Nick Gonzalez of New Mexico State. Obviously, any one of those picks, the Orioles would love to have um, more than one, but they get one of those. And I, I'm already kind of excited to see where they go here and to get three of the first 39. And what I love is this MLB.com list gives you 150 prospects for fans to look at.
1: It's a great thing to look at, and it's a great debate that I'm sure the Orioles are waging right now from their respective home offices. Michael Elias was telling us last week that they had already started their draft prep and have gone through a bunch of meetings. They've got an entire draft board, which – scales 40 different rounds and I don't have a great sense as to where they're going to go with the pick usually that early on you're you're going with best available Uh, but I think the Orioles are going to assess the different types of things that they have in their farm system they know what their strengths are they know where they're trying to improve Um, Torkelson can hit by all accounts the only thing that sort of stood out to me about him is that he's another one of those First base, third base, left field types, which the Orioles already have a bunch of right now, and kind of goes against what Mike Elias has is trying to do with his players. You want guys who can play multiple positions. I tend to think that if they don't go the pitching route, um, that they might try and go with Martin if he's still on the board at that point, just because he might be the best pure hitter in the draft and he can play a bunch of different positions on the infield. You could also move him to the outfield as well. You've certainly heard that with guys who plays shortstop before. Um, I think if I remember correctly, Brian Roberts on a spring training broadcast uh, had some really good things to say about Nick Gonzalez. Power numbers for him are really good. The one thing you do have to factor in is because he was playing in New Mexico, um, that they're playing at elevation, so the ball's going to fly a little bit there. But he put up a really good showing in the Cape Cod League last year. So that's something to pay attention to as well. And then on the pitching side, um, it sounded like Torkel, uh, the, um, the Georgia pitcher, uh, Hancock, Hancock, made some, made some adjustments. Uh, it sounded like this year. So maybe the numbers didn't look quite as good. It sounded like he was trying to pitch at the top of the zone a little bit more with his fastball, which is something that you're starting to see across the game. And it seems like Lacey is pretty well regarded, and there aren't a ton of maybe highly touted, left-handed pitching prospects Available. So he's intriguing too. If I had to to take a guess, um, I, I would imagine that they would pick Martin if he was available. If not him, maybe Gonzalez maybe another pitcher. I don't I don't know. They, and that's what's interesting about this draft. But the issues are that you just don't have a, a consensus number one overall this year like you maybe had with Adley Rutschman last year.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. Now, the Orioles don't get their uh, true pick of the litter, although they may, may end up with the guy they want. I agree with you. Based on organizational need to get an infielder, shortstop, second, third, whatever Martin or Gonzalez end up being, If they can hit uh, and play defense, that is just a huge infusion to the needs of the organization. Hard to look past that. It's considered a a pretty good pitching organization right now. But if you feel Lacey or Hancock are a legit, fast-moving number one or two, that's also, as we know in the American League East, almost impossible to pass up.
1: Yeah, those guys are premium type players. And, you know, the fact that they have college experience too, I think that gives Mike Elias a little bit more in the way of metrics to analyze. And that's something that they like to do. So I think there's a tendency for the current group to maybe decide to go with college players first because of the amount of information and data that is available on him that you don't necessarily have at the high school rankings, even though things have improved along those lines. But I tend to think that it's going to be one of the two infielders because if you look at upper-tier infield depth for the Orioles, they don't have a whole lot of it. I mean, Ryan Mountcastle has shifted to to play more of the, the outfield, and that seems like where, where he's going to be. Um, but there's not a whole lot of those highly touted, um upper level infielders that you feel like can make an impact on the Orioles in the next couple of years so if if you think that maybe Martin or Gonzalez can be one of those fast movers like you talked about that's why I would tend to believe it's going to be one of those guys that they go with
0: I agree and uh probably easier to acquire corner depth outfield help uh whatever it might be well uh, if you go and you look at some of the uh rankings of the Orioles' farm system right now, and you've seen most of them as far as infields go. um, You have uh, Caden uh, Grenier, who, uh, Grenier, I should say, who, uh, you know, is a high draft pick out of Oregon State, teammate of Adley. Uh, You have Mason McCoy, and uh, you have a handful of other guys who are are certainly intriguing. You know, I'm kind of high on Ryland Bannon as a prospect, uh, but you you don't know, but certainly no one is a a, a surefire here. Uh, but yes, if you could kind of earmark a shortstop or a second baseman, uh, given what you see at the big club and, and the organization as a whole right now, to me, that's going to be very hard to pass up. Probably a benefit this year for all teams picking in the top five to 10. That's a very
1: college-heavy draft, given the nature of the world right now. And you still think that uh, the one, and the other part that you have to consider too, is that The guys that maybe you could steal later in the draft that you still feel like could get through your system pretty quickly, you're probably not going to have an opportunity to go out and grab those guys this year because we don't know if the draft's going to be five rounds, if it's going to be 10 rounds. It's probably going to be one of those two. And then guys that you can maybe steal later, you know, someone in a 12th round or 13th round who's a college senior or somebody that you really like, um, you're not going to have those options because the cap for signings this year is at $20,000. And that's going to send a lot of those players back to college for another year. And I think that that makes it all the more important for the Orioles that you have to be sure what you want to do. And you need to hit on these couple of picks because there's less room for air. You'll be able to make some signings I would imagine, but the type of signings that you could get maybe in a, 11th round, 12th round, 15th round, um, guys that are under the radar types who, you know, you go back, you know, years later and you you give the the scout who saw him and picked him a, a pat on the back. And those types of players aren't going to be as available, aren't going to be available in this type of draft. And so it's going to mean that whatever you decide to do early on, uh, you need to try and hit on them. And the, and the other thing, too, about some of these infielders is that not only can they play multiple positions, but they can hit. I mean, yeah. you look at Martin and Gonzalez, these are probably your two of your best hitters in the entire draft as well. Yeah, there's no question
0: about that. Speaking of hitting, speaking of hitting, our guest coming up is uh, someone who was the Orioles' hitting coach from 2015 to 2018. And on one night at the ballpark, June 16, 2015, the Orioles routed the Philadelphia Phillies. Get this, Jeff. They scored 19 runs and 17 hits. And by my count, one, two, you know, carry the one. Eight home runs, eight home runs at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Where I want to talk about this night with Scott Kubal.
1: That was a game that pretty much the wheels came off for the Phillies. I think it was like the second pitch of the bottom <laughs> of the first inning when Machado hit the home run. And then Parmalee had the big game as well. He was somebody that was added to the 40 man roster that day. I mean that the day before he was on the taxi squad. So he's watching from the clubhouse. He's getting used to everybody and, and trying to get accustomed to his new team. And his first game, he goes out and hits a couple of home runs and, So that was part of a great month for the Orioles. They ended up winning 18 games, but you go back and look at 2015, it was on the disappointing side because you could hit, you hit more home runs than you did the previous year, even though you no longer had Nelson Cruz or Nick Marcakis, but you were missing some of the starting pitching that, that you needed to probably make any kind of, Push that year because the Red Sox were resurgent. Toronto had a really good season, and so it made it a lot tougher to compete. And the Orioles did; they, they stayed in it for a while, um, but they just never had that magic that they showed in 2014 that allowed them to get over the hump.
0: Yeah, pitching certainly the key. But let's chat with Scott Kuball. And now let's bring on the former hitting coach of the Orioles from 2015 to 2018, currently an assistant hitting coach for the Chicago White Sox. Scott Kuball is with us, and Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Let's look back at this date, June 16, 2015. It all came together for you and the Orioles' offense. 19 runs on 17 hits, eight home runs. What's your level level of satisfaction as a hitting coach when you get a game like
2: that? Yeah, I mean, you put in the grind every day to try to get guys to click and and, uh, come together on a nightly basis to try to win a ball game, and that's what you two do, and then when it see you see it come together like it did on this special night, uh, it's definitely very gratifying. It's something you hopefully build on, and, um, you know, it, it's one of those enjoyments that you remember, you know, as a hitting coach because they don't come very often, and when they come like that, you definitely remember them.
1: Did you have a sense it was going to be a special night pretty early because Manny Machado homered on the, the second pitch of the bottom of the first inning?
2: Well, I mean, uh, you know – we were facing Jerome Williams. Um, he wouldn't have been a spot starter for Philly. He wasn't one of their top guys at the time. I think he'd been throwing the ball well, but, um, you know, during that those type of months, June, July, August, it seemed like uh, we always were a team that kind of heated up from an offensive standpoint. And, um, you know, it was just one of those nights when Manny hit that first one. It, it energized everybody. Um, you know, Jerome got hurt in the first inning. I think we put up six runs, and it just – it was one of those things where I felt like um, everybody was, you know, putting the, the hammer down and, and, and going to go for it and have a great night. So let's go through the home run list here. You get two from Machado, one from
0: Jimmy Paredes, one from David Lau, one from Chris Davis, one from Ryan Flaherty, two from a player named Chris Parmley. Maybe some fans remember, but he was put on the 40 and then 25-man roster essentially before this game, and he goes deep
2: twice for you. Tell us about that. Well, it's funny you say that because last year, 2019 spring training, I was with the LA Dodgers and uh, Chris was in the minor league system and we had visited over and over about that night. Um, But those are the type of things that you find special because these guys are, you know, in the game that have grinded to get an opportunity and he come up and he really showed well that first night. I think he got four hits, you know, perfect night um, on a, on a perfect evening. So, Just uh, those are the times when you, you know, see guys that you haven't run across in a long time. It sparks memories right away. And, um, you know, just very happy for him to have the success that he had that night.
1: I know Buck was probably a a pretty stoic character in the dugout, but, but what were some of his reactions like when balls kept leaving the ballpark?
2: Well, I mean, you know, yeah, Buck's not going to react a whole lot uh, to some things. I mean, he's been around long enough to realize that's, you know, these are part of the game. But I think on nights like that night, um, you know, even in his eyes, they're special. Um, they're it's very hard to do. You don't see it on a nightly basis, obviously, and um, it's a it was a it was a record at the time for the franchise. And those are special moments. I know that he'll. Remember those for what they are. Obviously, the wins and losses are the main thing. But, you know, those are moments in time during your manager career that you say, hey, that was, that was really fun to watch. And I think deep down he saw that also.
0: Yeah, it's one thing to get a couple from Machado and, and one from Davis. But the uh, supporting cast on a da- game like this when uh, David Lowe goes deep and a Paredes goes deep. Now, we mentioned Parmalee and Ryan Flaherty. Is that almost more of a satisfaction from a hitting coach's perspective when, you know, the non-stars really contribute?
2: Yeah, I think so. Because every night, you know, I mean, guys like Machado, Chris Davis at the time, Adam Jones, you know, J.J. Hardy, those were kind of the the gluing pieces to the to the team. Um, you know, you had John Scope at the team also. Um, you kind of relied on those guys, and then you had a supporting cast. And so whatever, whenever you had the supporting cast really step up and have those type of nights, um, you really take pleasure in those. And especially people like Ryan Flaherty, Chris Parmley. You know, these guys were all grinders. Jimmy Paredes at the time, people don't realize probably that he was leading the league, I think, in hitting um, during this time uh, at, from an average standpoint. So. Uh, those are Those are moments that you remember those guys because that was their kind of their time in the sun that 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 time where they can reflect and say hey i was I did something special and was part of something special and and I, I think as a hitting coach that 's really gratifying.
1: Flaherty hit the final home run the eighth one of the night, and it came against a position player, Jeff Rancor, who had to come on and, and finish out the game. I know he was getting some grief about it afterwards for for hitting that that record eighth home run, uh, the most in in a game in team history. Uh, Were you giving him any grief at all that that it came against a a position player rather than a pitcher?
2: Well, you definitely got to join in with the group and and give the ragging going on. Uh, uh, It's funny you say that because I talked about Parmley in 2019 spring training with the Dodgers. This year in 2020, in spring training, I saw Ryan with the San Diego Padres, who's coaching now. And we laughed about it, about some memories, talking about the Orioles uh, times. And uh, we definitely brought that up with Jeff Francois and said he definitely can hit BP with the best of them. Um, But, you know, he takes it all in good fun. Happy for Ryan. It was topped it off. Nobody better to do it at that time than Ryan. and, And he takes the ribbon very well.
0: I want to ask you a question about Ryan, who's personally, for me, one of my you know,
2: really all-time
0: favorite guys uh, that I've ever covered. Uh, just a really nice, genuinely good uh, person, but obviously someone with a lot of talent. I mean, first of all, to play that many positions in a big league game, uh, in the big leagues, uh, someone who was a legitimate 300 minor league hitter or so, a high draft pick, and uh, he, you know, you rarely see utility guys hang around one team for four or five seasons. He's hit a couple of playoff home runs. But obviously he was never really able to uh, take those minor league numbers and put them in the big leagues. When you see a guy like that, just not being able to put the whole thing together in the big leagues, are you as a hitting coach able to identify the why to those things?
2: Well, I mean, let's face it, you know, everybody that plays at the big league level is, is definitely, you know, you got very good talent. Uh, they deserve that to be there because they're talent. I think a lot of the times, Uh, things happen that where you see that they don't handle situations as well from a mental standpoint or be able to slow the game down you know anxiety Uh, and I'm not saying those things are characteristics of Ryan but you know those come into play um, trying to do too much trying to prove that you belong all the time and Ryan you know he was as you said a, a top draft pick and you know, one of the things that kept him around is he did things so fundamentally sound defensively. And Buck was a big stickler on the defensive side of the ball, be able to catch it, do the little things to win ball games. And Ryan did that tremendously. That's why he played all those positions. Uh, but he was a hard worker. He was a hard trier. He He went out there every night and tried to prove that he belonged. He never felt like he was comfortable in being on the team. And I think sometimes that attributes to you know, not as much success as he had in the minor leagues. And um, it happens to a lot of guys. And, you know, Ryan has to be proud of his career. I'm definitely proud of him. Um, He was one of my favorite players to ever be around. You know, Caleb Joseph's another guy from the Baltimore Orioles. You know, those guys you you take special interest in because they care so much. They try so hard. And it doesn't come as easy to them as it does to some of the other guys.
1: One of the guys that it always just come easy for Manny Machado, who went from 12 home runs that season to 35, uh, had an impressive campaign. What was the big jump in home runs related to? Was it just being healthy or was it maybe something else?
2: Well, I think that a lot of times, you know, um, these guys go through injuries and it, it kind of forces them to um, put a little bit more emphasis in areas in their body that's going to help them along the way. And I think that with Manny with the knees, uh, he he definitely uh, strengthened his legs and his lower half. And I think that attributed to a lot more power. You know, you you don't find a lot of guys that are real skinny hitting home runs, you know, so he was a thin kid coming up out of high school. Um, He eventually grew into his body a little bit more through that injury in 14 coming into 15. I think he was, you know, as strong as he possibly would be at that moment in his time, and I think that started to le- lead him understanding how to hit for more power, and it just kind of took off. And as you've seen over the, you know, his career so far in a short period of time, you know, he's gotten stronger and stronger every year, and and he's able to put up those numbers consistently.
0: We all know about the infusion of numbers, data, analytics, whatever you want to call it in today's game. From a hitting coach's perspective at the big league level, how much of your time is dedicated towards the day to day prep here's the pitcher you'll face tonight here's the likely bullpen you'll face tonight uh to your hitting mechanics that hitter being ready to go physically and mentally to hit
2: well it is a combination of both but i would say that the majority of the time is is based on um you know game planning how are you going to attack the pitcher that night each individual how that pitcher is going to pitch that that hitter um some of the strengths and weaknesses what are you going to you know what is your approach uh, off of that certain pitcher depending on the type of pitches and what uh sequences he throws so those are the most important thing on a daily basis there's always cues that players go through that's why it's so important to have routines that these guys are you know stay on top of their mechanics they don't uh you know waver away from them they they stay consistent and those are the things you do on a daily basis to prep yourself for the game. But the most important thing uh, is really the game planning and understanding who's pitching that night, what he's going to try to do. If he, he attacks you a certain way and you have success off him, what's he going to do the next time around and change and try to get you out? So it's a cat and mouse game all the time. Uh, never, you're, you never got it down to a science, but you try to use all the data and, and things that are available today in, in the game and, and try to use it to your advantage.
1: 2015 Orioles were big home run hitting team that's what they have been for for a while but as you look at where the game is going with more of the three true outcomes what do you make as to sort of where the game is right now from an offensive standpoint
2: well it's it's difficult you know because I I grew up in an era you know where contact was you know a a big thing and you know, guys uh, stayed in the at-bats a little lot longer, and today's the game, you're seeing guys going for it from pitch one. Um, I kind of understand it. I mean, it's, a, it's you know, one swing, it's a it's a run on the board. A lot of these guys are capable of doing it. Um, you know, I, I've said a long time ago, it's a, it's a lot harder to, to get nine hits consistently, 10 hits a game, uh, and you've got to find other ways to score runs. And you know, it just related to now where the power is, is one of the things is the easiest way to score. Um, You don't see a lot of base stealing uh, much anymore to create opportunities. So the game has changed in that regard. And you kind of have to accept that and understand that, you know, we've always as hitting coaches talked about, you know, the best hit is the line drive, right? The ball in the air, line drive hit. We really didn't focus on getting the ball in the air too much, but more on a line drive. That was the highest average hit. So, um, you know, it's just kind of elevated as time goes. I think you, get, you always see the game changing uh, year after year as, as as we go in and more technology is, is being put into play. Um, but, you know, you adapt to it and you try to, you know, take a little bit of the old school sort of thinking and, and understand maybe, you know, play to the game, to the scoreboard a little bit more. to to you know, if we need base runners and if you need situational hitting, um to to get these guys to understand that's just as important too
0: scott uh, right now on the internet on twitter you name it uh, because of what we're in right now a lot of old videos of some great players are popping up constantly take a look at uh griffey Jr. swing take a look at mickey mantle swing whatever it might be who's someone you really just enjoyed watching from a pure hitting standpoint you can name more than one
2: Well, you know, I grew up with a lot of, you know, in the era with some really, really good players. You know, people like Jeff Bagwell and Ken Griffey Jr. And uh, Edgar Martinez, for one, Uh, played with Harold Baines, who's a great hitter. You know, you take different things. But one thing that I really enjoyed from a standpoint of a right-handed hitter, because I was a right-handed hitter, was Edgar Martinez. Um, I really enjoyed um, – I had an opportunity to play with Tony Gwynn and understand how he could take a game plan. Uh, watching video from time when we didn't have a whole lot of video that his wife would, you know, take video and he would watch it and, and, and understand what pitchers were doing to him and be able to apply that into a game and have success was was really special to watch in a short period of time. So um, those two guys were, were really – were really inspirational to me to watch. Um, Really, you know, Tony was the guy that, you know, to me watching him made me get invested a lot more into just playing the game.
1: You look back at 2015, Chris Davis had those 47 home runs. You were working with him every day. He showed a lot of promise in in spring training this year as he continues to stay in shape and mentally prepare himself for what we all hope is going to be a 2020 baseball season. What things can he take from 2015 and maybe try to apply to, to this year?
2: Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, I watch from afar. You know, I've always been a Chris Davis fan. You know, he's a kid that lives in the area. I actually saw him uh, about a week ago. I just ran into him just, you know, randomly um, said hello and seeing how his wife and kids were doing. Um, I think that some of the things that he did this winter probably translated into spring training. I think people saw some uh, success from him from a short period in spring training. We all know it's just spring training, but it was a different spring training for him other than the the years and and 17 and 18 and 19. So um, I think that he's probably excited about that, uh, probably trying to build off of that. And I'm rooting for him. I hope that, you know, he's the type of guy that, you know, has a bounce back year and, you know, he's taken a lot of criticism. He's handled it well. And um, I I think that, you know, he just needs to to go out there and, and play for himself and, understand that, you know, what makes him happy and enjoys the game again. And um, we'll get him back to possibly putting up some numbers that at least people will be saying, you know what, we'll, we, we really appreciate you going those hard times to see the good times.
0: And, and Scott, going back to the changes in the game, the evolution of the game, and just kind of play on the, the question about Davis, take Chris out of it. He's one of a number of players you could put in this, uh, hitting against the shift. And we, I've heard different breakdowns of it. I've read different breakdowns of it. Uh, you know, would it be simple for him to slap the ball the other way or someone like him to bunt it the other way, taking away their power, whatever it might be. Uh, but what's your sense of the evolution of that? I mean, I guess people have said, yeah, they they did hit it against the shift. They did it over the shift and it got try to put in the seats. But uh, what's your sense of the hitter's best approach, especially those dead pull hitters, when it comes to the shift?
2: Well, I think, you know, the hitters – Uh, our understanding that you know it's a there's a lot of frustration with especially left-hand hitters of hitting balls to the right side having to run 90 feet and take a right-hand turn and go back to the dugout so um you know I I think it's it's taking some time for guys to to really understand that you know I've got to be a little bit better at our craft I think hitting coaches uh in general are are trying to do some things in spring training and practice settings to try to get these guys to emphasize on uh, being able to use the shift to their advantage. Not so much from the bunting standpoint. Yes. I think that, you know, guys could that are capable of doing that could bunt, but um, you know, somebody like Chris Davis or, or people like that could use that to their advantage when time's at need. And what I mean by that is again, playing to the scoreboard, understanding the situation. We just need a base runner right here. We don't need to try to beat the shift over the shift because we're down by three runs. So um, getting that across to players in, in the way that it's, you know, the game has kind of evolved has been difficult for hitting coaches. And as you see it, um, but I, I think that, you know, that's not the turn hitting coaches from trying to get these guys to understand uh, to utilize that in a way that's beneficial to the team um, and playing to the scoreboard.
1: What's the, toughest thing for for hitters to do right now during the quarantine because pitchers are still able to throw their bullpens you know they can find a mound somewhere to go um but but how does a hitter stay actively engaged and get their work in when they they know that trying to get live bp from somebody um or just somebody throwing 95 off a mound is just not really an option right now
2: yeah, that, I mean, that's always the difficult thing. So you take the offseason, for instance, right? We, we kind of take it as an offseason. Unfortunately, we started spring training, everybody was feeling pretty good. We're in the mix of, you know, a couple of weeks away from starting the season, and and then he shut it down. So it's more of an offseason mindset. These guys are hitting off of the tee or somebody that, you know, possibly is, you know, flipping or throwing BP to them. They're always able to stay um, active. Uh, with their swings the the issue is like you said is is that timing of 95 to 100 mile an hour fastball coming in and that's going to take time again um, there's really nothing you can simulate um, to get that that timing and that rhythm off pitchers because they have different movements uh, different actions uh, ball has different actions and it's very it's tough to simulate that off of machines or just somebody throwing bp so The most difficult thing is, like you said, is that's why you have spring training. These guys got to get their timing back, seeing some pictures live. And, um, you know, that's going to be the interesting thing moving forward is that when the time comes that we get a chance to get back on the field is how long is it going to be needed uh, for uh, for them to feel comfortable getting ready.
0: And last one, Scott, a lot of uh, the TV cameras in a ballpark at a major league game aren't necessarily on a hitting coach, maybe more the pitching coach, certainly the manager. We know that, but I know you're so emotionally involved with your players. You work with them so much before and after every game. And let's say, you know, it's a breaking ball count. You know, it's coming. You think you've told your hitter it's coming, but it's still not picked up. Maybe he swings through it. Maybe he takes it for a called strike three emotionally. How, how much do you have to kind of tell yourself not to react in the middle of a game when I know you're so connected to each pitch and, and each
2: one of your players? Well, it's hard because you do live through the moments with the players because you spend so much time with them. You know, they're at bat. It's almost like you're at bat. You're going through it on a a pitch-by-pitch basis. But I think the one thing you have to understand is that, you know, if you show emotion towards something negative towards that hitter, you know, he's thinking that you're not backing him or, you know, behind him 100%. When he looks over, if he's looking like he's looking into the stands or something and he sees you with an emotional look, um, it may freak him out so I think the, the staying positive this game is very difficult it's a it's a game of failure really and for us as hitting coaches we got to be the support system and and understand we have to be strong our nights are tougher at night when we're going home in bed and we're scratching our head and the hair is getting gray because you're in bed thinking about how am I going to get this guy out of a slump or how can I get him to lay off that breaking ball in the dirt or you know how are we going to how are we going to get him to feel more confident at the plate? So. Um, you know, during the game, we try to be stoic and, um, you know, be supportive of the players and be as positive as possible.
0: And is hitting a baseball the hardest thing to do in pro sports?
2: It is not the hardest thing to do. It, getting a hit is the hardest thing to do. <laughs> so <laughs> you, uh, hitters would tell you, you know, they can make contact with the ball a lot of times, but getting hits with these type of players and the, and the data the, the shifts and the defense uh, alignments um, it's so hard nowadays, and um, you know it's it's something special to be a part of and watch these guys go through and have success because it is so difficult and it is the hardest thing to do in sports is get ahead.
0: Scott Kubal former Orioles hitting coach, currently an assistant hitting coach with the Chai Sox. Scott, we really appreciate. It. We hope you and your family are well in this time.
2: I appreciate it, guys. Thank you, and stay
0: safe. And hopefully, we'll get back to baseball soon. Let's hope. That was a lot of fun, Jeff, talking to Scott Coolball. I think you, you get around the game, and you've done this so much in your career, talking to the people in the daily grind of coaching or scouting, whatever it might be, and the perspective and stories they have. But to reach that level of a hitting coach, a big league hitting coach, and, and now in an a system with the White Sox, and he's seen so many great ones come through, and so many of the ones that you know probably overachieved or underachieved, which is just as fascinating to me as a baseball guy.
1: And just as – I think satisfying as a hitting coach as he kind of talked about with Ryan Flaherty and Caleb Joseph, when those guys are able to put together seasons that maybe they weren't sure that they were able to put together and they were able to overachieve and succeed and do what you wanted them to do. I mean, in in a way, as a hitting coach, you expect the superstars to perform and your, your top players to go out there every day and put together results. But it's maybe when you have a Flaherty, Steve Pierce, or or, or one of these other players that puts up numbers that you weren't necessarily expecting them to, but you see how hard those guys are working in the cage and in the tunnels and all the different video work, what they're doing. And as a hitting coach, you see all of that. Uh, When those guys go out there and put up big numbers and help your team in a meaningful way and maybe overachieve, uh, that's something that as a hitting coach, I think maybe you're, you're even more proud of
0: if you could tell us in your time uh, covering and calling minor league games in the Orioles organization uh, who's the coach you most like to kick the tires with and talk baseball with and uh, it wasn't it doesn't necessarily have to be talking about a specific player but the game itself the inside baseball of it all
1: there were a lot it's hard to probably pick out one uh, if dave anderson who is the um, now manager for the Delmarvis Shorebirds. If you spent any time with Dave Anderson and he would come into town a lot as the infield coordinator for the Orioles formerly, you would hear some unbelievable stories. Uh, I really loved hearing about him talk about his time in Texas working with Omar Viscal on an everyday basis and just how Viscal would go about his daily routine and how he would work with him and and the way that Viscal wanted him to do his pregame work every day. It didn't matter that he was in his 40s at the time. He had his set routine and the way that he wanted to to go about it, um, I had fun when Terry Crowley was a special assignment hitting coach with the Orioles, and he had his career as a pinch hitter for for the team, and was unbelievable at that. Uh, whenever he would come in, he could tell you baseball stories, he could tell you boxing stories, he could tell you all kinds of different stuff. Um, and and you know, there were so there's so many uh, good coaches and managers that I worked with that could tell you something about the game or go back in time and you, you you know, you'd remember it. And so to, to, to probably try and isolate a one guy would be really difficult, but, but I would say um, getting some of those stories, especially from Dave Anderson, uh, those were always pretty pretty memorable. Yeah.
0: That sounds amazing to get the kind of uh, inside look at the game, really the game behind the game and what it takes to play baseball at this level and play for that long. Uh, Jeff, our next episode is dropping Monday. We're going to feature the, one of my favorite all-time Orioles games. Uh, September of 2012, the Yankees were in town. It was Cal Ripken night at the ballpark. The Orioles, we all kind of in Baltimore, woke up around Labor Day and said, is this happening? Is this team really in? Firm contention after 14 years of, of losing and missing the playoffs. And it was a full house set night. Matt Wieters had a three-run bomb in the first inning. The place erupted. So you unveiled the new Ripken statue. It's the anniversary of 2131. Uh, Bill Ripken to this day, he gives one of the great speeches I've ever heard in defense of his brother, believe it or not, especially outside Baltimore, really only outside Baltimore. There were some, uh, there was criticism of the streak and and how it was viewed And, and Bill gave an airtight, just crushing blow to those people. And, I mean the place was alive and it was uh, at that point the Orioles and Yankees and really the entire way through right up and through that division series were playing neck and neck baseball and uh it was something else and and it was a wonderful game so we'll look back at that uh for our next podcast.
1: And as I go back and and research some of those those games from the past the ones that I've found the most exciting in in terms of the games and also the seasons have been the ones where Maybe you didn't necessarily think the Orioles were going to put up the numbers that they did and be playoff contenders like they were in 2012, or like they were all the way back in 1992. It was fun to go rewatch that first game uh, at, at Camden Yards that Rick Sutcliffe pitched, and that we talked to him about uh, on our podcast recently. Uh, those have been the seasons, and the ones when I when I go back and, and re-read some things about those years and. Um, remember some of the things about those years that, that I've been uh, the most uh, excited to, to go back and, and relive because it's one thing when you know you're going to win uh, and it's cool to look at those seasons in one way but it's maybe the years where you're, you're not sure what you're going to get or the years where you're surprised and and definitely that 2012 season and that 92 season were a couple of those
0: Yeah, no question about it. All right, Jeff, that was a lot of fun. We thank Scott Kulbaugh and the great team behind Orioles Magic, the podcast. Until next time, we'll talk then.